Hey everybody, my name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Krejci and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello and welcome to Rewind and Rewatch. We're back here on Open the Voice Gate here on our special series. This time, Rewind and Rewatch. As a part of the Dragon Gate 25 series that we're doing with Voices of Wrestling, we are talking King of Dragon 1999 as we are recording this right now at uh, 6.12 uh, uh, on the, uh, the day before the most important day. And... Uh, Dragon System history, uh, but before we get into that, we should introduce ourselves. We are your regular hosts around here on Open the Voice Gate. I am Mike Spears, and I'm joined alongside, as always, Kay Slow. And by the time everyone will be hearing this, it'll be appropriate to say this. Happy anniversary, Case. Happy anniversary, Mike. 25 years of the Dragon System. We, uh, we've mentioned this before. I think I have a spiritual connection to Toriumon and Drangate and Drangate USA and Drangate UK and so on and so forth, because this promotion is essentially as old as I am. I was born two weeks after the inaugural Toriumon show, and I'd like to think I've grown with this promotion over the years, but I am very excited, very excited to talk Toriumon. This is going to follow, if you were with us during the pandemic in 2020 and early 2021, we did the Rewind and Rewatch series for every Drangate USA show ever, which is as daunting as it sounds. And uh, we're going to follow a very similar format here. We'll talk about that in just a second. But Mike, I, you know, this is an impossible question to answer, but I will still go ahead and ask it. 25 years of Toriumon, how could you summarize that possibly to somebody who has maybe never seen a second of the promotion before? 
Well, first and foremost, we're going to have to explain this Magnum Tokyo character. Like <laughs> a lot well, of Magnum talk. Yeah, right. Yeah, but it, it it's something where I, as we do like for preparation for these rewind and rewatch episodes, this is also a, a big time for Case and I to kind of get ourselves in the mindset of 1999, especially as it was for the Dragon System. It, the, the the thing that I would have to impart is just how both different and the same things are from watching this show from January 31st, 1999 in terms of dragon system. I feel like if you watch this show and then you watch contemporary shows that were happening in Japan of that time, you'll see a very stark difference if you're watching anything other than Michinoku pro at that time. But it, but what you will see is something that is probably a lot closer to modern pro wrestling as we know it today than anything else you would be able to see in, in 1999. Yeah, that's, you know, that's an interesting way to look at it is, you know, obviously we have the remnants of this promotion, if you will, still in Dragon Gate. And not only do you have some of the same guys that we're going to talk about here as we take you through the journey of how Torimon came to be and then we review this first show, you know, your Don Fuji's and your Susumu Mochizuki's and your uh, Yasushi Kondas and Keiki Horaguchi's, those guys were obviously on the first show, and they're still active wrestling on almost every show in the promotion now. But there is a spirit of this promotion that whether it was led by Ultimo, or it was led by Magnum Tokyo, or whether it was led by Shima, or now as, as we see President Kido in charge of things in Dragon Gate 1 Ward with Ultimo Dragon back in the fold, there's, there's a through line that can be made. There's a spirit that has never really left the building, whether it be in Cork and hall or whether it be in Kobe world Memorial hall, or whether it be in the tiny towns that they go throughout the country, because as we've talked about a number of times, you know, the dragon gate business model, which was the Torimon business model. When Torimon was an active promotion, no promotion in Japan or in the world rather ran more shows than they did is Look, Dragon Gate's going to hit Tokyo, and they're going to hit their home base in Kobe, and they're going to hit Osaka and Kyoto and Fukuoka. But when they're not wrestling those televised uh, matches, they are going to tiny towns, little villages all across the country, and that essentially acts as their recruitment tool. You know, it's why their dojo, for especially the last 10 years, has always been stocked and plentiful of exciting new wrestlers is that there is just something about this promotion that is different than a New Japan or a NOAA or an All Japan. It is an all-hands-on-deck sort of promotion. It is one where, you know, we know the wrestlers are designing the merch, and they're setting up the chairs, and they're setting up the ring, and that was relevant on day one, King of Dragon, 1999, January 31st, 1999 to be exact, and it's something that we can still say holds true in 2024. Yeah, and it's something where I think as we've seen, like, I know I mentioned what we watched today in pro wrestling is much more similar to King of Dragon than it is anything else. But it, it it's this fun contrast, I feel like, that happens with the Dragon system. That you have this on-screen product or entering product that has been called cutting-edge basically since the day it was formed and hasn't stopped innovating ever since. But you have that backbone of a very traditional style promotion a one that goes across the country and has made it a point of pride to go to every prefecture and be able to do that and a lot of that is a mantra that kind of starts with this first tour 
And and I think in, in a lot of ways that like fosters this camaraderie that we have seen throughout this promotion where people have come and gone, but there's a current there, there's always a current that goes through it. And I think you start seeing that being formed on this uh, King of Dragon tour, and especially with what was posted for the first ever episode of at the time this was Fominos Amigos. That was uh, two weeks later posted on Gaora. Like That's you start right. see That's it right. coming together from that. So uh, the uh, we'll get to the Toribon debut show here after we go through a, a, a basically a decade in an abridged timeline here. But anybody that has not seen the Toribon debut show that would like to, it is on the Drangate Network. If you go to the homepage, click on the Toribon archives. It's going to be the very first upload there. I'm sure you can find it through other ways as well. This is one of those shows that has circulated very, very well, no matter what the hosting site of choice is during the era. Uh, I'm sure you can find this show elsewhere. But Mike, are you ready to dive in to the timeline of how Torimon came to be? I absolutely. Before we do, just for new listeners, uh, timeline is where we try to look at the contemporaries and the other things that have come to form this. And Dragon Gate USA involved us talking about Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate and all that going back to 2005 to present. But Case, when we start talking about the birth of the Dragon system in Torimon, Japan, we kind of have to go all the way back, and we have to go back to uh, 1987 and talk about the New Japan Dojo, don't we? That's right, because... So often when Torimon is discussed, and this is, I, I think, largely the right frame of mind, the focus goes to the first five students, which we'll obviously go in depth on here in just a little bit. But, you know, Shima, Magnum Tokyo, Dragon Kid, Don Fuji, and the man we now know as Sua. That is the focus of this. But Ultimo Dragon is the founder of this promotion. He was the trainer for this first class. And I started thinking when we were planning this podcast about how Ultimo has now been, whether you want to say old or at times irrelevant or at the very least past his prime, he's been in that era of his career now longer than he was an active, relevant, exciting pro wrestler. And so I think it's really important that we tell the story of Ultimo Dragon and we explain how this promotion, which like we just talked about, has had a certain spirit and character and vibe to it for 25 years. That is all whether he was active there or not during various points and times in history. It's all because of Ultimo Dragon. And we have to explain who he is. And, and for those that don't know why Mike referenced the 1987 New Japan Dojo, is Yoshinari Asai, the real name of Ultimo Dragon. He grew up during the peak of Satoru Sayama, and Tiger Mask specifically, he was a Tiger Mask obsessive, a stan, if you will. He was a guy who, oh, when New Japan would run a big show on a weekend, he would travel by train to that town, and he would try to get into Tiger Mask's hotel room just to show him that he could also do Tiger Mask moves. Sayama eventually took note of him and even gave him Tiger Mask gear. And so Ultimo Dragon now, you know... Uh, becoming an adult 18 years old almost he decides he wants to fall in those footsteps he wants to become a junior heavyweight in the new japan pro wrestling dojo he takes the entrance exam he survives it he's there uh with with crispin wall and el samurai and that era of student i, I believe uh is muto there at that time or is muto just slightly before uh muto by 
80. 87 he's there yeah he's he's already he's already gone through yeah he's already gone through uh he might have already have done his first muda tours at that point yeah it's right around Rico. that time yeah but, but he's in there with with benoit and el samurai and a few other names of note uh so he he gets through the entrance exam and then at the very end new japan says look thank you for coming congrats on getting your ass kicked you're still too small to be here and they cut him loose and at that point you know, that, that could have been the end of it. That decision right there could have changed wrestling as we know it. But instead, in 1987, he goes to Mexico. And Mike, he immediately becomes a star as Yoshinari Asai in Mexico. Yeah, and that's one of the... Uh, I, I think if we're talking about hinge points of Japanese pro wrestling, the fact that uh, he goes through all of the New Japan Dojo training and essentially like passes every single physical test other than the fact that he was below 180 centimeters. That was it. And if it's something that seems like that we hammer that we have hammered 180 centimeters over time, it is something that's encoded within the, I, I would say the DNA of Torimon, that the fact that this is a, a style in a school that has been made from being told no, essentially, and being able to go and forge your own path. And that path, really immediately happens for him just he lands in mexico and it takes off mike what would you say is the defining characteristic of the Drangate dojo nowadays i would say more so than anything what, else what makes them different than noah or new japan or all japan there's one specific thing that uh they do not require that everybody else does well they're basically as long as you're under the age of 35 you, you will get a shot if you, your money is as good as anyone else's Absolutely. And on top of that, not only is your money as good as anybody else's, but there's no height limit. Exactly. Exactly. And that has been something since day one has been such a feature here. And you mentioned the first five uh, students of Ultimo Dragon. The tallest one is Don Fuji and Don Fuji's at 176, I believe. Yeah, not not a not a ginormous man. So you have Ultimo. He starts off his career in what we now know as CMLL, but he quickly moved to UWA, who was the hottest promotion in Mexico at the time. And just by by fate, Gran Hamada in a, a money mark in 1990, they decide that they want to bring the stars of Universal, uh, the UWA in Mexico. They want to bring them over to Japan and form Hamada's Universal Lucha Libre promotion. You'll see this promotion written a million different ways. Sometimes it's the ULL. Sometimes it's Hamada's Universal. Sometimes it's Universal. Sometimes it's Universal Wrestling Federation. It's all under one uh, cocoon, if you will, of this grand Hamada vision of bringing Lucha Libre culture to Japan, having the biggest stars in Mexico work in Japan. It essentially, and I'm only just now realizing this, was the predecessor for the original Drangate USA format. Yeah, and it is something where you you take someone like Hamada, who we've talked about Endless and other things. Sadly, when we talk about the story of Torimon, Hamada is a factor with it, but this is kind of where we already see the two massive trunks of the Lucharest tree already starting to split. Just the fact that you have this promotion that's being formed by Hamada getting all of the stars and really the people who he wrestled with in uh, Toreo and UWA over the 80s and bringing them in and using that as a backbone to create his own promotion from it and start training his own students in his own 
sort of wrestling that he personified. And you have the person who's already along for the ride, who who kind of walked the same path, but did it his own different way and has his own kind of uh, version of Lucharest that comes out of it. Yeah, so the the idea for Hamada's own promotion is that Grand Hamada is going to be the drawing card and that they're going to have this exciting youngster Yoshinari Asai. He's going to be, you know, sort of the next man up. But they would have thought in 1990, and this promotion forms and debuts in March of 1990, that there would be a greater runway for Hamada as the star and Asai as the spry up-and-comer. But what happens immediately is that Asai over, overtakes him in terms of popularity and uh, really just takes off for the promotion. I'll read this here from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, which we'll quote often here. This is September 14th, 1998. This is after Ultimo's botched elbow surgery. Davis sort of summarizing his career. And he notes when talking about Asai in Universal, he says, and I quote, Hardcore wrestling fans in Tokyo and Nagoya made Asai with his graceful style, hard work, and unique flying moves, such as his trademark Asai moonsault, into the big star of the group, throwing money at him after his performances. In a sense, Asai and Universal changed Japanese wrestling because he was the first wrestler who was basically a middleweight who became the top star of his company. Because of his Japanese success, he was quickly given the UWA middleweight championship to signify to the Japanese fans that he was indeed a superstar in Mexico for his status when he would make return tours, and they gave him a title belt to defend as a result, which he wound up holding a record five times, end quote. And this is really important to note because... Again, Ultimo's so funny because depending on when you catch him, you have a very different idea of who he is. Most people are going to you know, treat 1996 through 1998 as the Ultimo Dragon time period. It's when he's in WCW. It's when he's in New Japan. It's him doing his highest profile stuff. You know, me personally... I'm familiar. I'm watching in real time post Prime Ultimo, so I don't I don't always have the most love for him. But the era that gets overlooked the most is before he was Ultimo Dragon, when he was, you know, a borderline you know karate gimmick, unmasked, real name, and he comes into Universal and specifically his feud with Negro Casas, which you can find one of their singles matches on YouTube, and I would highly recommend checking it out. By the end of 1990, he is one of the best wrestlers in the entire world. And it's something that pretty much, and one of the fun things about Hamada's Universal is it's not a very hard promotion to track down, I feel like. And it's not a, sadly, did not last super long. Basically, by the end of 93, it is done. But it, you really see very quickly that that uh, Asai is this first of, like, the next generation of, of junior heavyweight stars. And it, and it's especially, I, I think it's, it's a, a notorious in a way because he's doing it completely out of the all Japan, new Japan uh, paradigm. He's doing this in this promotion that essentially was an indie promotion becoming this uh, just a hinge point star that was really built on this. And, and in a way it's before it's it, the timeline kind of lines up that he's starting to do these things before he's really uh hitting his prime in a way because for me okay so like if we talk about ultimo primes really quickly for me it is that what comes right after uh universal for me interesting so uh that's a great point on on a few different levels one 
you're exactly right. Universal stuff is easier to find than people realize. There, I, there is some weird perception because I've I've read this a few different times that there's not a lot of Grand Hamada footage out there, or that there's not a lot of Universal footage out there. And that is not true. It's it, there's there's quite a bit of it on YouTube. But if you're familiar and you know how to look through archive.org, I mean, there's not only the television broadcast of Universal, but they have a boatload of handhelds on there too. There's actually a ton of this promotion out there. Um, and yeah, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing about Ultimo's career where I, I think throughout the 1990s, whether it's a year or a phase or a promotion. A lot of different people can side with different points in Ultimo Dragon's career and being the, uh, you know, a legitimate superstar on the independent level that starts to create friction because Universal is founded in 1990 by 1991. The vision that was there is just not what it was. The promotion is starting to have financial problems and that coincides with financial problems in Mexico for the UWA as well. So in November of 1991, CMLL, they coax Dragon Gate away, or not Dragon Gate, but Ultimo Dragon away from the UWA, away from Hamada in Japan, and Ultimo all of a sudden is given, or I guess I should say a sigh, is given the Ultimo Dragon character he was supposed to debut on October 28th, 1991 in Arena Mexico, but UWA had, uh, this is Dave's words, one more trick up their sleeve uh, as a size working visa was with the UWA and not CMLL and word got out that they were going to give him immigration problems if he worked that CMLL show. So Dragon would go on to work the show by doing a run-in and seemingly skirting any immigration issues in the process. And as Dave later put, the temporary headache would be worth it as for the now masked wrestler, uh, Asai uh, was getting paid nearly nine times as much money as he earned in the UWA, and according to one source with his new deal, Asai became the highest-paid Japanese wrestler ever to work for uh, to work foreign soil, as his contract was better than Keiji Muto's while he was the great Muta in WCW. And, and to be clear, I think this quote uh, basically is up until like 1996. Yes, like it, it, it would be Muto coming back th- th- that he would finally get paid more than what Asai was getting paid. And, and, I, I, and I think, you know, this is where if you want to look at the man Ultimo Dragon, which this mm-hmm. podcast certainly has, you know, this man loves his cigars. He loves Cuba. He lo- he loves fine living. I, I, as of this time of recording case, how much does he love fine living? He skipped out on a Dragon Gate show to do a boat cruise show. Yes, that is that is exactly right. I don't know if I would call that fine living, but uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, he's on a yeah. boat right now. <laughs> he is on a boat right now in the Caribbean, which for him is fine living. But, you know, I started to think about this because there's the the Taylor Swift quote where she talks about how you are sort of stuck frozen at the age you're at when you become famous. And Ultimo, as we can now permanently refer to him as, you know, he is a big star in the UWA when they are the top promotion in Mexico. He then bounces to CMLL and becomes a big star there briefly before the triple a split he becomes one of the most infamous juniors in new japan pro wrestling's glory period of the junior heavyweights he becomes other than Rey mysterio the most recognizable cruiserweight in the wcw division he then gets back with cmll when they take control of the top spot in mexico in the late 90s as well up until his arm injury he is a star 
in the hottest promotions of whatever country he's working in. And he was a legitimate star in three different countries during what can be looked at as a peak era. And yeah. so while we could roll our eyes at Ultimo not bumping in indie matches and not bumping in Dragon Gate matches and, you know, in Dragon Gate at times, not often, but at times having a shocking amount of pull and getting his way, there is a little bit of him where I can understand him going like, look, I'm Ultimo fucking Dragon. Like, I've kind of done this a time or two. Just listen to what I say, okay? Yeah, and if there's one thing I hope that people take out of this timeline, I think it is that his uh, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame uh, position is unfairly maligned by people who don't realize how much of a draw he was in those territories at that time. Like, yes, was he ever the top person in WCW? No, but if you would list uh, people that people remember from that era of WCW, you're not going to get too far talking cruiserweights before you bring up Ultimo Dragon. And then you extend that back to, he was never full-time with New Japan. Like, he never, after they kicked him out, like, I don't think he ever signed, like, a full-time contract with New Japan. He was doing that as an independent as and he well. was he was doing New Japan as a draw, as a special as a attraction. Draw, while he was also doing WAR, which was his actual con- contracted promotion. Yeah, exactly. So Ultimo is now in Mexico with CMLL, but because he leaves the UWA in Mexico, he has to leave Hamada's group in Japan. So he links on with SWS, uh, an, another rich man that wanted to start a wrestling company. And, 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 uh, and, and, and just to jump in here, Case, uh, SWS... As we go through this, and if we make this into like an ongoing kind of thing case, I will constantly hammer home SWS is the progenitor of basically modern indie uh, Japanese wrestling. Because you, if you follow the splits from SWS, you get Dragon Gate and you get DDT. What a gift. Yeah. You know, it, I, I, look, it's here, wild. I was thinking, here I was thinking SWS was worthless. Turns out, no, it's not. Hey, uh, Pro Wrestling Crusaders and WAR. Pro Wrestling Crusaders, which would later down the continuity end up being DDT and then WAR, I would probably call like the more spiritual predecessor of Torimon, basically. SWS is really the MLW of its day where like I'll yeah. be going through I'll, I'll be going through YouTube sometimes and I'm like Oh, Tenru versus so-and-so from SWS. This sounds good. Let me check this out. And it's always at least a half star worse than it should be. Like if it was a New Japan match or if it was an American promotion other than MLW, you finish the match and you go, well, that should have been better. What, what, why is MLW where good matches go to die? And it's the, sa- it's the same exact vibe when you watch old SWS. Yeah, and it is something that as we get into talking about people who ended up kind of weirdly influencing these people, I mean, you could do a, th- a line that the reason why a lot of people ended up in WAR, who later would end up in Dragon Gate, uh, in Torimon and then Dragon Gate, would be because of the figure of, that was SWS was based around, Janichiro Tenryu. Yes, exactly. So, you know, SWS turns into WAR. I don't know about you, I associate Ultimo most with, in terms of Japanese promotions that he worked, I associate him with WAR. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, it's just absolutely. I mean, you know, their their top star is obviously Tenru, but in terms of a full time guy that they had, I mean, he's he's at the very least got to be up there, right? In terms of star power, I would say so. And I would say that also when you talk about featured matches of that time, and this is one of the the, the wild things is this is about the start of the internet, or at least the 
the consumer internet. So you can, if you search in the right places, you can get find people talking about it in, in real time. They're not talking about Tenryo. They're not talking about all the various people that, that kind of go through. They're talking about Ultimo's matches, and especially like Ultimo and Jericho and Sumo Hall, things yes. like that. Well, Ultimo, Jericho, and Sumo Hall, Ultimo and Ray, and the Jacob oh, 95. Yeah. It's never about Tenryo or Tenryo's really his true spiritual heirs. It's about Ultimo. Absolutely. So I, the mid-90s, which is what he's most known for, I'm going to gloss over this just a little bit. In 96, he starts working WCW, cruiserweight champion there. He becomes the J-Crown winner. That's the famous photo everybody knows where Ultimo's got. He wins the eight belts from the J-Crown, and then he's still got two left over. So he uh, has 10 belts by the end of 1996. At that point, you know, it's New Japan, it's uh, it's Mexico, it's WCW. He's He's working all over the globe, and he's a big star. And Mike Spears... At the beginning of 1997, Ultimo Dragon decides that he is going to start training the next generation of stars. Anybody uh, that wants to come with him to Mexico, no size requirements. They just have to pay to get to Mexico, and they can train with Ultimo Dragon. And on May 11th, 1997, we have the very first Torimon Mexico show. Is now the time to talk about the first class of Torimon students? Yes, and it is now time to talk about these five guys. Uh, kind of, I, I, I would say that we have a kind, you could put some of them in multiple camps. Like, I feel like in a way, Shima and Dragon Kid are two very kind of, I wouldn't say similar kind of backgrounds, but but they do kind of come from one way. And Magnum Tokyo and Don Fuji end up coming from a, a much more different way. And then you kind of end up with Sua, who who is kind of like this X factor of this class, I feel like. Well, Sue was an, I mean, Sue was an X factor in wrestling. The guy never fit in and it was his charm. But as we go through the backstories here, you know, let's start with Shima, right? So in the same way that Ultimo Dragon idolized Tiger Mask, Shima idolized Ultimo Dragon. He was a JWA Kanzai wrestler, which mm -hmm. like this is your wheelhouse. Can you explain yeah. to the folks at home what JWA Kanzai was? Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So it's something where the closest thing to kind of call this is, and it's very unfair, is backyard in a way, but it's not it. It, it, it is something where it's amateur, not always traditionally trained wrestlers. And a lot of people come from uh, the, this style of amateur. It's usually called amateur pro wrestling. And if it's either from promotions like JWA Kansai, which was based around Osaka, uh, Shima had multiple characters, but most known as the Mass Man Flying Mickey Hayano Jr. and also Mickey Hayabusa Jr. He's had a couple of those characters, but other people who've gone through JWA Kansai are Masato Yoshino. But when you talk about amateur wrestling, this is a generation that was the first one to kind of go from this uh, amateur style and like non-traditional kind of wrestling with friends and like putting on our shows that way into actual pro wrestling because the current president of new Japan pro wrestling is an amateur wrestler because he did it in college, like at, at like college club wrestling. So you have that for uh, Shima 
And it's something where he did this and he kind of came up this way because he came from a very kind of impoverished blue collar uh, upbringing, like to the extent that he was essentially he was the youngest person in these classes that he was. I, I don't know like what his final like level of education is, but it is something where he left school early to work and to save up money so he can go to Torimont, basically. Absolutely. And then, you know, similar kinship is Dragon Kid, who I think a lot of people know his story, uh, wanted to be an FMW wrestler and FMW told him no. He found out that uh, Ultimo Dragon was opening a school. And so to help pay for his entrance fee into Torimon, he started doing all of the hazardous FMW matches. There's there's a few where you can see an unmasked Dragon Kid and, you know, exploding barbed wire, cage matches, etc., and uh, then he ended up being recommended to Ultimo Dragon through Jinsei Shinzaki. Yeah, and he kind of is the first of a lot of former F&W guys that end up in the promotion. It, it's kind of funny. Like, you would either say, like, from, like, the first, I would say, three or four classes case, you would you guess, are they a WAR guy or are they an F&W guy? Uh, Dragon Kid holds up that end of that. And let's just th- talk about the WAR guys. Uh First and foremost, kind of the one that it ends up being like the most identified with it because he, uh, his relationship with Jinichiro Tenryu was so strong. Uh, Magnum Tokyo case. Uh, do you want me to run th- run down his uh, backstory? Yeah, please. So, uh, in contrast of Shima and Dragon Kid, who had a lot more working class backgrounds, uh, Magnum was a rich kid essentially. Uh, he was a salaryman working for his dad's company until he saw Ultimo. Working in WAR, he wanted to become a pro wrestler. He always kind of wanted to do this, but he had to go work for his family. He was able to basically say, like, hey, uh, Tenryu, I will be essentially your bag boy for this because I want to be a pro wrestler. Tenryu never really thought that he was going to do this until Ultimo uh, started doing Tori Bond. So, yeah, go do that then. So that he came up from WAR, and it's something like even like after uh magnum left dragon gate there was always kind of the tenryu factor with him yeah i mean well when when magnum leaves dragon gate they had just formed uh the renaissance unit which was what him and fuji and mochi and konda konda yeah, konda's the fourth one and they're doing i mean i you know tenryu the last promotion that he worked in other than his own, on a semi-regular basis was Dragon Gate in 2006. And so all of those guys are either teaming with or wrestling against Tenru. And that was, you know, eight, eight years after Magnum had left for, or nine years rather, after Magnum had left for Mexico. But that that goes to show you that uh, the WAR bonds are strong. As also Don Fuji, who was a sumo, in his, a sumo wrestler in his younger days. He joined WAR and then moved to Ultimo School. He was part-time in the WAR uh, dojo, but was doing business stuff for them behind the scenes. That's what yeah. kept him around, but he never debuted for the promotion. Yeah. So the interesting thing, and uh, I, lo- I I was able to find this today. Uh, so Don Fuji, legitimate sumo wrestler. He made it only to the fourth highest rank, uh, Sandan Mei, uh, which is basically, uh, you're essentially still an amateur case with this. Uh, you aren't salaried. You get basically a, uh, you get an allowance. You are not a young boy, but you are just essentially one step above it. And uh, uh, Don Fuji said that he was going to give Sumo 10 years, and he gave it essentially 10 years. Never made it really pro, just kind of stayed in. Essentially, it was a 
career long minor leaguer and that and then by his mid-20s he decided to move on and Tenryu again former sumo wrestler himself uh there was a natural kind of end with that so that's where he ended up there I've said this many times on VoiceGate throughout the years, but had Don Fuji actually wrestled for WAR if he was 10 years younger or was born 10 years earlier, let's say, and he's a an indie Japanese wrestler in the 90s, he would be considered to be a sneaky all-time great that the PWOs and Segunda Kedas of the world would worship. They would build him a monument. They would pray at his feet. He would be considered that level of good. He just happened to work in Dragon Gate, and so 25 years of goodness is often overlooked. Yeah, and it's like wild. Uh, he he really does have that energy of would-be teaming with Koji Kanemoto at a Tenryu Project show today. Yeah, very much so. So uh, the, other, the other member of this original class is Sua. He was an animal Hamaguchi trainee, so think uh, Milano Collection AT, think Shingo Takagi. I don't know how he got hooked up with Animal Hamaguchi. I, I would like to get a little bit more information on that. But Suo also shows up in Mexico with these guys. And uh, other than Dragon Kid, they all debut on the May 11th, 1997 show. Also, or I'm sorry, not Ultimo, but Dragon Kid would debut on a CMLL show that year uh, at Arena Mexico. I think it was November 14th he has his debut. It's those six, uh, it's those five. So Dragon Kid, Shima, Fuji, Suo, and Magnum. Plus the uh, man we now know as Super Shisa, but all caps Saito. And a quick note on him. Uh, he was a Michinoku Pro trainee who didn't make it through the Michinoku Pro system. He also trained in Mexico with Ray Mendoza. And I'm a little confused on the timeline because Shisa has tweeted in the past that he trained in Mexico with Hayabusa uh, when he left Japan very briefly and then came back and basically became a big star. I'm very unclear on the timeline of a lot of that stuff, but I know he credits Mendoza as his trainer, and I know he spent time in Mexico in 94-ish with Hayabusa. Yeah, my impression always was that Saito was one of those guys who kind of after Hamada ended up working in Mexico or training in Mexico because they were too small for the uh, traditional dojos or they did not want to do Animal Hanmaguchi's uh, kind of prep stuff. He wanted They wanted to do actual training. So it was something where, like, I have no idea how long he was in Mexico. I just know that he was in Mexico, trained with Raymond Mendoza. And by the time that Ultima was running stuff in Nakapon with Dos Caras, he ended up joining them in the dojo there. Yeah, so uh, he's a little bit like Subasa, who is mm -hmm. a guy who Ultimo actually trained before Toriumon, but just just a Japanese guy who really loved Lucha Libre. Right, yeah, and I think that it's something where, it, 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 in a lot of ways, uh, Saito, Shisa, and he kind of becomes who he is, like, in contrast to Ultimo, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. So that is that is the first class of Torimon. Those guys all, like I said, they debut on May 11th, 1997. Uh, we'll get into what they did leading up to that debut in just a second. But Mike, can we talk about the second and third classes real quick? Because these guys are also on the debut show. Yeah, that's right. Uh, these guys are really considered the backbone of Torimon Japan. And by they are second and third term students. Uh, really, it's they're lumped in as second class, even though the last person technically was in third class. But he 
made it into Japan earlier. It is Kenichiro Arai, a former FMW student. G- uh, Ginky Horiguchi, longtime SWS fan. Uh, Yazushi Kanda, a uh, big fanboy of Tiger Mask, Soccer, Ichikawa, and Susumu Mochizuki. Real quick on Horiguchi. So for those that don't know, last year I wrote a 20th anniversary column about his El Numero Uno 2003 performance, which picture Genki Horiguchi in your head. That man was essentially born during that tournament that night, April 22nd, 2003. I interviewed Horiguchi for the piece, and I I heavily lifted from a sit-down interview that he did with Pure Riso Today on their YouTube channel uh, in 2021. And so I go really in-depth into the story of how Horiguchi chose to become a wrestler because he was somebody who uh, was very undersized, very much not your traditional build. He, oddly enough, and this is where SWS becomes useful again, went to an SWS show in his hometown, blew his mind. He thought he wanted to be a baseball player, went to that show and said, nope, I'm going to be a pro wrestler. He tried to get linked up with Yoshiaki Yatsu's uh, essentially backyard promotion, the Social Pro Wrestling Federation, and didn't make it into uh, their dojo, which his mother laughed at him when she got the phone call that he did not make it. And right when he thought that he was going to give up, he found out that Ultimo Dragon was looking for students in Mexico, and he went down there. So uh, again, a lot of insight from Horiguchi specifically into the start of his career, his time in Mexico, and how he got there. That's all at VoicesOfWrestling.com on the article titled Hage, the Enduring Legacy of Genki Horiguchi and the Backslide from Heaven. Yeah, and it's interesting, I feel like, with this class, you have guys that really, I I, I would say, were born of that early 90s, uh, indie, early to mid-90s indie scene, especially with, like, Kenichiro Arai and Horiguchi in that manner. Yeah, no, it's a natural evolution of what they had seen, especially uh, whether it be FMW or WAR or Michinoku Pro, which we'll talk about here in just a second. I'm going to go to the Observer as we need to talk about the impact that Torimon had in WCW and shame on me for not trying to reach out to a fellow voices of wrestling discord member, John Muse to get his insight on this, because this is something that he could really speak to, but it really dawned on me today as I was looking at some match records, just how often Ultimo dragon students, the first term students were used in WCW all throughout 1998 they're there from February through November, basically. Yeah, and it's something where maybe it is that you think about, as they called them there, Tokyo Magnum and Dancing Fools and Ernest the Cat Miller going after Shima Nobunaga. But it was something where like their bread and butter ended up being the uh, Saturday night and the WCW Pro shows where... Never really in any sort of programs outside of uh, the Dancing Fools and the Ernest Cat Miller Nobunaga uh, thing. But essentially, it was something where you had Ultimo already always having these kids around, essentially. And when, and when I say kids, Shima is 21 at this point, it, 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 which is just mind-blowing. But it, it, it's something where w- w- when we always talk about how... Uh, uh, Fusiant and Eric Bischoff wanted to base WCW around Torimon and the Cruiserweights and uh, MLW wanting to have the Cruiserweights in the early 2000s. Like a lot of that is based on the fact that 
Ultimo was the guy who had his students front and center in front of, at least in 1998, the biggest promotion in the world at that time. And yeah. it already kind of got them in a, in a way that there was a leg up that was not there for a lot of the other, uh, I, I would say, wrestling uh, Japanese independent scene uh, up until the, the mid to late 2000s. Well, you think about it. I mean, they're working IWRG in Mexico. They're working Michinoku Pro, at least the Crazy Max guys are, in Japan, which we'll talk about their time at Michinoku Pro here in just a second. And then they're working WCW. And I want to read uh, from the April 13th, 1998 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Dave is referencing the El Dandy, La Parca, and Psychosis versus Judo Sua, Shima Nobunaga, and Tokyo Magnum match from the April 6th, 1998 Monday Night Nitro, uh, when he says... These Japanese, uh, the Japanese are three students of Ultimo Dragon School in Nakampone, Mexico, and considering their experience level look great, Magnum showed a ton of personality and potential, best match on the show, end quote. And a uh, reoccurring theme on this episode, the personality and potential of Magnum Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 this for, for those who are wondering about when we were going to get real sicko about Magnum Tokyo, this is it for the, the this is like his prime right here. And it was very easy. Like when you think about the characters and I would say that other than the crazy Max evolutions that just would not have an opportunity to happen in WCW, because why would they? Uh, he is the one that like when you would pick uh, out of the five guys, you would pick Magnum and you would pick Dragon Kid. Or Little Dragon at that time. Like, those are the two that, like, jump off the screen for you. And the fact that WCW very quickly... And maybe what would have happened in the world of the Dragon system if they didn't decide, hey, we like the Japanese stripper guy? I wonder, like, what (laughs) that would have happened at least. Like, would cooler heads prevailed in 2006, basically? Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious... In, in the in the landscape of WCW that it's, you know, Magnum is just, he's on a different level. I mean, again, you know, they, they, they don't really get behind him in a real way, but it's just, it's a different ball game when he's on the screen compared to Sua or Fuji or even Shima. The other guy, like you mentioned, is Dragon Kid, and Dave says in the July 6, 98 Observer, he says, Little Dragon pinned Eddie Guerrero in 423. Dragon is a protege of Ultimo Dragon, who has amazing agility, but is still green since he's been wrestling a year but will probably be another Rey Mysterio Jr. in about three years. Uh, Dave was uh, overestimating it by about a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, you're talking, I would say, mid-2000 yeah. is when, yeah, I mean, that's that's when he figures it out. So uh, that's a little bit of their time in WCW. We'll get back to that. But something big happens in July of 1998. Crazy Max. Shima, Fuji, Sua. Before I even say what's next, I guess we have to explain Crazy Max. I don't know yeah. if, every, if everybody fully knows what they are, but for the entire existence of Toriyaman, they all together are the faces of the promotion, even though they started off as heels. And it is something where even in 1998, so when we talk about them going to Michinoku Pro, this is also the time where we kind of need to talk just just a second on the status of Michinoku Pro yes, in 1998 please. because this was something where Sasuke, another former Hamada Universal wrestler, uh, is kind of left in a little bit of a lurch because of his big draws in Kaintai Deluxe, by and large, with the exception of, of uh, Kaz Hayashi, all sign of WWF as they form the 
light heavyweight division. Allegedly, Sasuke talks his way out of winning that championship. It goes to Takamichi Noku. Kai and Tai basically gets controlled and paced into WWF, and they leave Michinoku Pro. Michinoku Pro and... 1995 especially like up until the departure of kaintai deluxe is the other side of the japanese indies that's inhabited by fnw and war and essentially at this time uh the the way that uh, michinoku pro exists is a home army versus a heel invading force and what do they have to do case they have to go take their biggest star and turn him heel and sasuke turns heel forms sasuke gumi and he needs to have new guys backing him, and he brings in Crazy Max as the new heels that the Michinoku Pro uh, Saki Gun Babyface Army have to vanquish to defend the rights to Hoku. Yeah, when we talk about the, the Dragon System lineage, it, the, it's very easy to follow. It starts with Hamada and everything that he does in Mexico, and really we can, we can bold with a highlighter his promotion, Hamada's Universal in Japan. Ultimo leaves does his own thing, trailblazes, forms relationship with the WAR guys. Sasuke leaves in 1993 because they're they're out of money and universal. He becomes the first promoter not to base his promotion out of Tokyo, Michinoku Pro, Northeastern Wrestling, and, uh, you know, f- takes the, the universal trainees, takes all these guys that Hamada has trained, gives them flashy gimmicks, he essentially creates his own army of Japanese luchadors, and then, you know, I think we all know the story of the Sekigun versus, versus uh, Kaintai DX, the thing that I pointed out when I wrote about Masaki Mochizuki uh, for his 30th anniversary over at VoicesOfWrestling.com, Michinoku Pro struggled to ever evolve from Kaintai DX versus the Second Gun Army. It just, it, even the crazy Max stuff, by that point, they were over the hill. It didn't make a ginormous difference Pace, in the box office. That, 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 that's essentially what Michinoku Pro has done to date. Like, they, they always have a heel army going up against Second Gun. They've never gone past that. Yes, exactly. Whereas, and the reason I bring Mochizuki into this is the first year of Torimon is Crazy Max versus the Torimon Sekigun. And the only reason that this promotion has a legitimate lifespan, that they're able to progress past hot indie with some buzz, is that M2K is formed. Susumu Mochizuki, Masaki Mochizuki, Asushi Kanda, they turn Crazy Max babyface, they become the heels of the promotion, and all of a sudden, life is pumped into Torimon in a way that, they, you know, they've never given up those breaths ever since, you know. But Michinoku Pro never had that. And at a time of desperation, they call in Crazy Max. And this is where I always have a bit of a hot take, but my two favorite eras of Shima's career are, one, 2018, after he left Dragon Gate, the six months where Wrestle 1 was really hot and he was in DDT and he was going to go to AAA and he was bouncing all around the world. And two is Michinoku Pro in 1998. I think this is some of the very best work of Shima's career. Yeah, and it's something where where Kaintai Deluxe, like it would end up being like beatdowns and it would be in a certain kind of way that is not dissimilar to how things would go. Uh, Crazy Max escalated things. They would break down the rig that they would grab the ringside bell and start ringing it themselves to kind of do this. They would have uh, uh, the, the big thing was that Sasuke had a special car table chair and table that he would sit at and smoke cigarettes as crazy Max would just like destroy things. And it was just its own kind of aura. And it was all led by at the time Shiba Nobunaga is just unparalleled charisma. And it worked in a way that uh, Magnum's, 
Magnum, when we talk about his charisma, he found it where Magnum found himself. However, like embodying the Tokyo Magnum, Magnum Tokyo character, he just kind of sunk in there and he always kind of has been that. Shima kind of finds himself. I think he takes the lessons he learned in Mexico and he applies it in Michinoku Pro being this pure, just creative Rudo. And it, it, it is something that we get to see a little bit of it in 2010, I would say, okay? So like, like the, the very early days of Blood Warriors, I feel like we kind of got a little bit of that, but he's never kind of gone back to that style ever since. Well, okay, yes, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, in the same way that Magnum just popped off the screen to an irreverent degree in WCW where you could watch those Nitros and go, oh, he's the star of this group. Shima does the same thing in Michinoku Pro. He works like a rabid dog. I mean, it, it is... Dive-bombing. And it like he just like tears things apart. He's, what, 21 when he's in Michinoku Pro? He was born in mm-hmm. 97, or 77. So, yeah. So, he's 21 years old. 20 for the, for the most part when he comes into Michinoku Pro. And he works with such a charisma and such a confidence and such polish, which is the important thing. Because Dragon Kid had a lot of charisma, but Dragon Kid lacked polish the first year and a half of his career. Shima just comes in and immediately becomes the focal point of this promotion. I can't recommend the Crazy Max stuff in Michinoku Pro enough. If you're looking for a specific match, one that I know is out there, Sua, Shima, and Fuji versus uh, Masaru Seno, Masato Yakushuji, who is one of your guys, and Solar. That is from the January 8th, 1999 show. That is That was televised. That is out there. Go find that match, a real late-era Michinoku Pro gem. But this is where Crazy Max, as we know it, they work together in Mexico, but Michinoku Pro is where this unit starts, and it becomes, again, the defining factor of Torimon. They're there through the entire promotion. They fold in October of 2004 once the promotion has turned into Dragon Gate already. So you can't overestimate or, under, or uh, understate, rather, the importance of Crazy Max to Torimon to the Ultimo Dragon Gym because these are it's a three-headed dragon of of superstardom and in Michinoku Pro again I mean think about think about post Kaintai Michinoku Pro like I can't even think of early '98 Michinoku Pro I don't I don't know what they're doing it feels totally irrelevant I I think we see what happened in 1999 happening a year earlier yeah exactly you know the, the Crazy Max gave them life and it was through Shima again just wrestling like a madman i mean it, it's really it's a bummer that um we didn't get more of this because even in torimon he just he feels too established it's almost like he got right. too big too fast to really do what he was doing whereas at michinoku pro it's you know it's his first drill matches in japan and he just comes in like the world owes him something it's it's just remarkable to see so uh dave notes in the august 10th observer uh from 1998 Crazy Max debuted in July, and they must have done so well that Michinoku Pro invites them back after their first tour. And then we have this very important note, September 28th, 1998 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Dave says, and I quote, Ultimo Dragon held a press conference on September 17th, saying, among other things, that he was planning on suing the WCW doctor who performed his elbow operation. He mainly announced that he would be forming yet another new promotion in Japan called Toriumon, which would debut on January 31st in Cork and Hall for a one-week tour. He said he plans on promoting a uh, four. He plans on promoting four one-week-long tours in 1999 using his students like Magnum Tokyo, Shima Nobunaga, Sumo Fuji, Judo Suwa, and Dragon Kid, and hoped he'd be able to return to the ring in time for the first tour. End quote. Yeah. So. 
uh, I, I forget which day or when the elbow operation happens as as it relates to the timeline of the birth of UDG and Toriumon, but it is something very much where it, it the, the overall idea around this was that he would bring his students every every quarter, they would do this tour and they would all go back to Mexico. And the ones that would have already graduated up and get through it, they would have the work and Michinoku Pro, but it was all still really based around those four one-week tours that Ultimo was going to headline. Yeah, if you're somebody who is ever curious about watching Torimon from the start, and you can do that because the Drangate Network has essentially every Torimon upload up through the end of 2003. I think they're missing one TV from December of 2003, and then they just have 2004 left. But all of this stuff is on the Drangate Network, at least 1999 through 2003, in the first year is really simple to watch. It's it's not complex at all. It's, you know, some of Ultimo Dragon's Lucha friends. It's Crazy Max, and it's Magnum Tokyo being Magnum Tokyo, but it's very digestible. There's not a ton going on. It's just a lot of young guys trying things, and I, I it's uh, it's not always what I want to watch, but when I'm in the mood for it, it really hits the spot. Baseball fans, are you excited for the upcoming season? I know I am. It is time to gear up and show your team spirit with MLB Shop, the official online store of Major League Baseball. Find the latest jerseys, hats, apparel, and collectibles for all 30 MLB teams at MLB Shop. Represent your favorite players, your hometown team, or relive classic moments with exclusive throwback gear. Gear up for the season at MLB Shop. Whether you're cheering from the stands or watching at home, show your love for the game with official MLB merchandise. Make sure you use our exclusive link, voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB shop to help support the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. Again, that's voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB shop. You'll pay the exact same price, the exact same items. Everything is exactly the same about your shopping experience, but a small percentage of every sale comes back to us. So again, it's voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB shop, the official online store of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and it's something where I think that you you kind of get to see, and we'll, and as we start to talk about King of Dragon in that sort of fashion, you you start to see the beats that would become familiar, and it's it, it, it almost in some ways I kind of like I love the network what they have on the network and how it's presented, but getting like the grimy DVD thing where I'm like I'm seeing like the cuts into the studio kind of puts it a, a little bit more into perspective that's not just like this pure on air just what we see now today with just in-ring product there was a lot of stuff based around it that happened that i feel like added a lot to those times yeah so what you're referring to is the format of vamanos amigos would obviously be the shows the in-ring action the promos but then they would also have studio talk segments where it'd be you know ultimo dragon and magnum tokyo or it'd be crazy max or it'd be whoever they would provide commentary for those matches but they would also kick them back to the studio and do studio segments those segments are absent on the dragon gate network uploads right which is a bummer so final note here this is the november 2nd 1998 wrestling observer newsletter and i found this to be particularly interesting because dave's relationship with dragon gate is odd i never I never know how much he's watching, even when I email Dave recommendations, which I I, I bounce in and out of whether or not I, I do that or not. Uh, but like I was reading some old 2003 observers uh, last week for something else, and 
Dave is following Toriumon pretty closely. And, you know, there are times where he's had the right people in his ear telling him that he should watch stuff, explaining the angles to him, and he gets it. I found it so interesting. In 1998, Dave says that he also got a chance to see some of the null component matches with Ultimo Dragon students. Dave says he saw a six-man, which included Dragon Kid and Magnum Tokyo. Tokyo is a great Mexican babyface doing the stripper gimmick, a la Latin Lover. Although that gimmick would be a huge heel deal in the U.S., he's actually an amazing worker when he's allowed to show it, given his level given his level of experience, which is just over a year. Dragon Kid is very reminiscent, in fact, in many ways better than Rey Mysterio Jr. at the same stage. He did one of the most mind-blowing moves I've ever seen. He gets on top and does the flip like he's going to do a 450, but lands on the guy's shoulders and then flips backwards uh, to do a Hurricane Rana. Uh, he says, Dave said he does it totally professionally, no botching or sloppiness at all, which, you know, we'll see if that lasts. Um, and uh, he said he also does a springboard Hurricane Rana from the same precision of Ray at his best. Uh, then Dave ends this with, he also has only about one year in the business and has Phenom written all over him and that both of these guys will debut on January 31st in Cork and Hall. Yeah, so Dave got to see the Dragon Rana, which would become a two-time Observer Wrestling uh, Observer Awards Wrestling Movie of the Year, and then the uh, Super Hurricane Rana. But it, it is something where, so at this time, there were commercial Torimon DVDs that would come out of this footage that I don't know if Dave got like the knock upon tapes and that's where he got it, but like this footage didn't end up happening. It just ended up being commercial releases down the line. And and I so I don't I don't know this for certain, but I think Ultimo might have had some distribution through Samurai TV at the time because mm-hmm. if you go, if you go through Observers in '97, there's a lot of controversy over the fact that Ultimo could work in Mexico without booking his dates through Sonny Ono, and that he also had a Japanese TV deal, which none of the other luchadors or anybody on the roster had anything of the sort, and WCW still allowed it. Yeah, it, it, and of course, like that, those deals would later form the formation of Amino's Amigos. So, yes. like, it the, the one thing that I think is remarkable when you like think about Ultimo as we kind of get to the end of this timeline is we've basically talked about his '90s here, and this is all up until essentially 1998. He was he's able to be, become a star in multiple promotions: uh, Universal, New Japan, WAR. WCW, uh, EMLL, CMLL, uh, UWA, and he's able to put this all together in such a fashion that in in a lot of ways, I feel like he could have just rested on his laurels, rested on the Hacienda, and some people might say that they hope he ends up doing that tomorrow, but it's something where I think you, you look at someone at least like at a certain period of time, like you talked about how like light light was always shining on Ultimo's ass in a way, but he could not other than like his elbow injury, he could not miss essentially for the entire decade of the nineties. No, he was, he was a brilliant wrestler. And I think a lot of his stuff from the nineties is actually aged extremely well. The only thing holding Ultimo back, if you're someone that kept track of his career post nitro is that from I don't know, 2005 through 2018, he largely sucked. Mm-hmm. And that is such a bummer because from 90 to 98, he is otherworldly. Uh, so it's just, it, it's a real shame that, that you know, the, the injury happened and the botched surgery happened. I find it so interesting because I've always wondered this. You know, Dave notes when Ultimo held, the, held his press conference announcing the show that he was hoping to be back wrestling on that first tour. 
And it's impossible to say, but I want to throw it in your head because, you know, you're, you're a smart, creative guy. How do you think Toriyaman changes if Ultimo was an active wrestler in his own promotion? I think in some ways, uh, I think that that ends up being a back and not the worst case scenario. But I think that having Ultimo around means you don't have the attempts and you don't have like, okay, well, now we need to have we need to turn crazy max face and we have m3 we have m2k here and now we have this three-way kind of thing where we have kind of a trio of aces that kind of they'll be of ultimo around there's no place for these aces because it's ultimo's promotion it, it, and from what we know of this man would he make sure his students be featured well yes but i think that you would have things being kind of restricted because the fact that he is there it's really it's an it's an odd thing i mean it becomes right it becomes, I think, a blessing in disguise that he's not an active wrestler because you're either looking at, you know, almost a, an older version of what he does now. Because, you know, if you watch a modern Dragon Gate show, and this is why his presence doesn't bother me in the current day, because if you have a seven match Dragon Gate show, 99% of the year, Ultimo is in a meaningless multi man match that almost feels like it's off in its own universe. O- only uh, once or twice a year does Ultimo feel like he matters to the day to day of this promotion. I think we either get, you know, Ultimo wrestling his luchador friends, which is the harmless version of him wrestling in Torimon, or you have worst case scenario, uh, you know, maybe this promotion doesn't last because maybe he and Shima kill each other, or maybe he and Magnum kill each other, or maybe he steals Magnum's spotlight, or maybe he steals oh. Shima's spotlight. It's just a total disaster. Or you don't get the different fan base that is completely separate from the rest of Japanese pro wrestling because you have this middle-aged guy here instead of young hot guys. Well, that's that's a, that's a great way to lead in to the show because I, and I said this, I reviewed this show on Between the Sheets with uh, Zellner and, and David Bixenspan a few years ago, and I really wanted to get across the fact, and I talked about this a little bit when. Uh, I did the Patreon audio with Joe and Rich over the Observer Hall of Fame this year when I talked about Shima. It's really important to note that from January 31st, 1999 through now, Toriyaman, Dragon Gate, two words, one word, Dragon Gate, whatever you want to look at it as, has been a box office success. And this first show is a legitimate sellout. They claim 2,100. There might have been 2,500 people in Cork and Hall. It is one of the, the most crowded times this venue has ever looked. And one of the defining characteristics of this promotion early on, I would say from probably 99 through 2003, is the fan base itself is very different than your traditional Japanese wrestling fan base, Mike. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, conservatively, 85% women and 15% men, and it is something that is at the forefront, and it's something where it Dragon Gate, uh, early Toriyaman Japan, sounds different than basically every other promotion in history. Like, with the exception of probably early 80s uh, All Japan Women, I would say. But because it's just that kind of heavily slated, like in as how wrestling kind of changes through times, it it has now gone to a point where I would say it's probably uh sixty five thirty five women at this at that point. But when you have it in in a show like this, and you have it especially positioned very clearly, uh, I, as we start talking about King of Dragon, uh, the debut of uh, raising the army, 
of uh, Torimon Japan. It's based around one person, and all the women there are to see this one guy. Magnum fucking Tokyo. But before we talk about Magnum, let's start from the uh, the first match on and uh, go from there. Absolutely. So the opener is Ginky Horiguchi versus Yazushi Kanda. We get about four minutes of this shown. Geku, Geku Judo elbow drop from Kanda. It is called the Geku Judo at this time to win the match here with a Ginky at a, a he's always kind of positioned at least through 99 and into 2004 two fixer. He very quickly is defined as the bottom guy in the promotion. Yeah, which is funny because he's, I think, one of those guys who was immediately good. You know, right? I, yeah, I I like this era of his career a lot. The look of it and just sort of the the swankiness of it. I mean, this is this is a textbook opening match. I you know I, I don't want to say this is what opening matches are, are are dreamt to be, but it's two guys who go out there and they have a very competent lucha technical wrestling match, and you know here they are twenty five years later. Yeah, and it's the the fun thing that they did the uh, the during the uh, I think it was during everyone's 25th anniversary series they reran this match and the second match that appears on this show the the Kanichiro Arai versus Sumo Mochizuki match Kanichiro Arai wins with his fun comebacker diving headbutt and about four minutes shown if you're watching from a, a different version of this and the network one all you have to know is it's everything that they show in ring is the exact same between the two of that. And I, I think the thing we, we have to talk about when we talk about Kenichiro Rai in 1999 and really up until the uh, Shen uh, M2K days is he is kind of the cult favorite of Torimon. And he kind of already gets that at this point though. He's not really there as like fan service, but like people get behind Kenichiro Rai very early in this promotion. Well, he is one of those guys who, it's funny, you know, like Arne Anderson has looked old always. And so, it, it, you know, he's he's aged very gracefully in a sense because Arne at 25 doesn't look that different than Arne today. Arai looks super young until he didn't. And then he looks super old all of a sudden. And he slowed down pretty quick. And even though you and I both love him, this is not Ark and Slander by any means. But there's a pretty drastic difference from the first five years of his career through the next 15, you know? And I don't know if people realize, even if they love him now, when you and I both certainly do, how exciting of a wrestler he was at one point. And in not like a grimy stomp around kind of way, but in like a, this guy has high spots and he's really competent and he's he's kind of sneaky quick in the ring. And, and he's this charming. Is very, very much so. I once saw him uh, wrestle Naruki Doi and Doi did a missile dropkick off the top rope and Arakan countered the missile dropkick with a headbutt. And that, to me, is one of the greatest things I have ever seen. Yeah, and it's something like you talk about how he was always young until he doesn't look young. It's something where in the main event you see him come out and he has the the tight around headband. And you're like, okay, this guy looks like he could be fresh out of high school. And you're like, holy shit, that's Kenichiro Rai. Yeah, right? It's just a totally, it's a totally different look. Yeah, and it's something that, like, at that time, he's in his early 20s, so it's very young. It's just... He hits that certain point, and sadly, it is probably during the Araiwa days that he just <laughs> instantly became 55. 
Yeah, it's weird. Never, never was middle aged. Just young and then very, very old. But I, I like this match. I mean, I, I like these first two matches quite a bit. And as you watch Toriyaman throughout the first year, again before M2K is established, and for some of these guys, you know, before they've been wrestling full time for a year, you just get a lot of these very simple almost the Japanese equivalent of like a WCW pro type of match in Arkin versus Susumu, you know, both these guys would go on to do bigger and better things. But I, I like this quite a bit. I, I think the, the theme here that should be hit on because it's a five match show with the main event being 45 minutes, but the first three matches, I would say very, very easy to watch. Yeah. And it's something with how these these are done in the format. The first match, you get kind of the entire thing. You don't get that in the second match. And in the third match, you have Yoshikazu Taru absolutely destroying destroying Stalker Chikawa with a Taru driller that, uh, at least according to Dave Meltzer case, this is the, the, the move of the night is the is the Taru driller that comes in this. And we see afterwards... Uh, uh, Taru go stand uh, above uh, Soccer Chikawa and take a Polaroid photo and leave. Do you know what? Did that ever lead to anything? I kind of forgot about that. No, but it was over and it was a good gimmick. I think it was just something where like he was like posing over him just being kind of a hoodlum, essentially. Hey, you know how Taru is. He's a big hoodlum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so this is where I'm once again going to kick it back in your direction because this is one of your mini wheelhouses. I wrote about this a little bit when I talked about Masaki Mochizuki's career because on the Torimon broadcast, uh, instead of showing Kendo and Supernova versus Bombero Infernal and Dr. C- uh, Cerebro, they cut to Kobe Sambo Hall in the second Torimon show ever. This is their home base. This is the venue they still run to this day. And they show a tag match between Masaki Mochizuki and the aforementioned Taru versus uh, Kiichi Kawano and Takashi Okamura, Buku Dojo wrestlers. Mike, can you please explain the importance and significance of the Buku Dojo? Well, this goes back to WAR, as most things do. Buku Dojo is was a legitimate karate dojo formed by former yokozuna uh disgraced yokozuna it's worth noting uh koji katao who was one of the stars of war and he had basically if you watch 94 through uh 99 war like war still exists at the time of this uh at the time of this show so just to give a frame of reference and it and will basically exist through this summer but you would see basically Koji Katao and his kind of army of guys and cutoff geese, essentially. And they're just karate guys. And some of them were just karate fighters who just get thrown into it. And some of them were ones that actually wanted to become professional wrestlers. But Buku Dojo ends up becoming this kind of really important backbone of not just Poryamon in ring, but also behind the scenes as... The, uh, mo- the 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 most important figure really to come from Buku Dojo, other than the aforementioned Masaki Mochizuki, is Sakashi Okamura, who kind of inherits the whole karate dojo mindset of Katao. Uh, he it seems like he might have already had the money at that time, but he kind of steps in and he does not wrestle very long in, into uh, the Torimon day, especially as it goes from the four tours a year to actually like an active full-time promotion he becomes running the back end and takashi okamura 
kind of positions himself in the place where he was essentially the number two of Ultimo Dragon and was his business partner running things in Japan. And when the split happens, it kind of perfectly positions Okamura as a natural person to be the business leader of Dragon Gate. And it, it all kind of starts from there. You also have uh, Kawabata for, from T2P. He doesn't really uh, stick around too much outside of that. And then Chocobo Kobe, who is the one that actually had Russell won the business. And he's the one that kind of sticks around the longest out, out of outside of Mochi and Taru. He's kind of the one that goes in and goes out and finally kind of just uh, faded away. And I in kind of like 2003, I would say, or thereabout. Yeah. Okay. Explain to me because I don't know this. What What are What are you saying about his tie in with Russell One? So there is an actual Russell One company, and it was uh, formed by a uh, Chocoball uh, by one of the guys from a uh, Crazy, uh, not from Crazy Max, from a uh, Buku Dojo, and that's what like they actually like. Like the first Russell One was not the Russell One unit. There was like a company that does like food services in uh, the greater Kansai area. Interesting. Uh, do, do you know, because I believe I'm right here, but I'm not 100%, uh, 100% sure, was Taru looked at as a big local promoter in the Kobe area? Yeah, he was. And I think he was the local promoter for Kobe and Kyoto Yeah, in the early days. So on the broadcast, they show that match from Kobe. You know, it's very rare for me not to recommend a Masaki Mochizuki match, but I, I find the Buku Dojo stuff to be tedious and... It's a uh, lot. When, when it's not Mochizuki and Chocoball Kobe, it's not enjoyable. Luckily, Taru ends up splitting off in a crazy max pretty shortly thereafter, and Mochizuki and, and Chocoball Kobe do their own thing, which I, I like that because, uh, you know, for those that don't know the angle, for the last part of 1999 and 2000, Chocoball Kobe is just begging Mochizuki to be his partner. And Mochizuki finally agrees, and then he turns heel and joins M2K and leaves Kobe in the dust for uh, for a short amount of time there. So very enjoyable stuff there. But I would not I, I would say that's probably the low point on the broadcast. What I'm curious though, Mike, is I mentioned this Lucha tag, Kendo and Supernova versus Bombero Infernal and Dr. Cabro. Have you ever seen this match? No, and I would love to see it because I like Solar. I am so so curious if this mm -hmm. is out there in any form because i have never seen it i am dying to see it i have the program from this show sitting next to me they're on the cover of the program i have the uh, weekly Pierrot magazine from this week which covers two very big topics one the toribon debut show two giant baba's death yeah are, yeah <laughs> because oh, it was the same day <laughs> yeah it, yeah so i was preparing like a big japan segment and then we realized wait this is like the worst week in japan to like talk about <laughs> because there's yeah. just too much stuff happening yeah you know hashimoto is blowing up his relationship with new japan there's you know the formation of osaka pro which is a whole other ball game that I, did you want to touch on this this yeah, real, yeah quick? real quick just so uh, here's the thing i've seen photos of this match they're on the cover of the program i know this match happened i have never seen footage of it i am dying to see footage of it it goes 20 minutes if anybody has a version of this broadcast out there that is for some reason like a satellite feed or yeah. an uncut feed not the two-hour vominos amigos feed this is near the top of my Dragon Gate Holy Grail list. I'm sure it's not very good, but I just want to see it to say that I've seen it. 
Yeah, it's just kind of like the, the that missing piece, I would say. But very much so. So let, let's let's frame it this way. We're just about to talk about the main event because you mm-hmm. know the first four matches on this show are are not much. It's you know it's young guys doing their it, thing, whatever. Y- um, y- you know what the you know what the what it really does. What you have here, you get to see uh, in the first two matches, you get to see the backbone of the promotion essentially because it's not like I mean, other than Arakan, who just is just is just crazy over. Like I'm not exaggerating about this. The the other three aren't really the major players that they will be until 2000. Like it's just kind of seeing the stage there, but with starting with Taru and then showing the Kobe tag, you are getting to see what crazy max is before going full fledged crazy max in the main event. Very much so. And so before we talk about this main event, which for many reasons, one of the most iconic matches in the history of the dragon system, let's briefly talk about Japan at large, because I think it's important that we frame the six-man tag, which, spoiler alert, I think both you and I would say it doesn't hold up great, a 45-minute six-man elimination tag team match. It, let's it, it, yeah. <laughs> let's, with, with guys who are... With 99 Dragon Kid. Like, just say <laughs> yes. it out here. Dragon Kid is by far the worst person in, in, in this promotion at this time. A tough night for him. Yeah. But let's frame the six-man tag through the scope of what else is happening in Japan at the time, if you want to briefly talk about the other happenings. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting time in 1999 because you have, as we kind of, we didn't mean to like like treat it in that kind of fashion, but you have the, the, the death of, of Giant Baba and how that completely changes that one side of the Japanese wrestling ecosystem. And it immediately kind of opens up a lane. And while that's happening... New Japan is just doing their uh, Anoki really wants to go full in on MMA at this time. It is very clear that that's where his interest in is. And it is the the missteps that would lead to the problems that New Japan would have in the later part of the aughts leading into Bushi Road. I feel like that when we look at the major scene right there, I think that that's kind of where you are looking at in this ecosystem. And that's backed up that. At this time, where you would have the Indies and where you would have your FMWs and your WARs, not and your Michinoku Pros, the ones that are kind of like the three, uh, your three bedrock Indies of the 90s. Uh, Michinoku Pro would have another split that would happen while this was all happening. Uh, Super Delphin, uh, Masato Yakushiji, and everyone else is leaving Great Sasuke because there's like an overall, like, kind of belief that it would have been that like they wanted to focus on them and on that style of wrestling and not on crazy max i get that 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 is the overwhelming vibe that everything i've seen about this i'm not an osaka pro expert but they very quickly michinoku pro ends up being a husk of what it was just three years before and that means that torimon ends up having a further longer relationship with michinoku pro just basically in a way keeping it up because of uh Super Dolphin does this thing called CMLL Japan that does awful, and then Kakao, which ends up being Osaka Pro. And this is all coinciding with WAR basically dying. WAR will have a show the next summer that I think the main event is Takashi Okamura sold match because he is never near the main event in WAR ever. And he's suddenly in this match of Onida case. Yeah, okay, so lots to unpack there. So Mm-hmm. On the on the Michinoku Pro Osaka Pro relationship, and again, I, I'm I'm not an expert in Osaka Pro. It's a weird blind spot for me that I I just don't have 
the background information on that I that I would like to. But uh, you know, 1998 comes to an end, and Delphin announces that he's leaving the promotion. He, he said, uh, and this is from Dave in the Observer, that his plan was to spend all of 1999 in Mexico. And Dave was alluding to the fact that he could make more money there than in a husk of a Michinoku Pro promotion. Instead, uh, he becomes the uh, the lead promoter for CMLL Japan and also launches Osaka Pro. So you get it's weird. It's been lost to history, but this really nasty split that is very much 1999 wrestling where it's it's part work part shoot and they bleed into each other and you're not sure exactly what's going on but sasuke and delphin have major heat mitch noku pro you know their their claim to fame in 99 is that i guess they have a working relationship with toriumon who comes in and steals their thunder and then osaka pro very much harkens back to the early days of Michinoku pro which is hyper regionalized small shows uh in some some special matches in those first few years uh before they they much like Mitch Noku Pro did ballooned up got big for half a second and then got much smaller again and, and then Delphin fucked off and did something else yes exactly so uh a lot of i mean it's a, it's a great way to put it you know you can look at Japanese wrestling in in its history the the beginning of Toriumon just completely changes the era because just by happenstance, it leads to the crumbling of Baba's All Japan and the formation of Noah. But when Toriumon comes in, it really puts the last days of Michinoku Pro being a relevant promotion. It puts that down to pasture. FMW and WAR, they don't last much longer. And Osaka Pro, again, is is really off in its own little universe. So the indies of the 90s, not to mention something like Battle Arts, where you had a guy like Masaki Mochizuki working there, who they, you know, slowly start to die a death as well. You just see all of these promotions that were mainstays in the 90s. They fade away. Toriumon, persistent as ever. Noah forms a year later. And we sort of get the ecosystem that we now recognize, because I don't think there's been business maneuvers as drastic as they were in 1999 since... You know what I mean? Well, well, everything after 99, like, what is another split from All Japan to form Wrestle 1? Yeah, exactly. After you have Pro Wrestling Noah, New Japan basically gets brought down to heel and is rebuilt as soon as they get anyone related to the Inoki family out of the picture. And it is something where, in, in a lot of ways, the story of uh, Toriumon and Dragon Gate's uh, 20, 2000s is they're the one that had their act together and was able to capitalize on no one else having their act together. Like it, it's some people might call it attrition. I call it competency, yes. but it, it was something where when you look at that period that starts in January, 1999, and let's go through the death of Masawa in 2009, it is something where it's it, the, this show is the start of the most consistent promotion and a promotion that becomes not just out of attrition, but in its own right, the number two promotion in Japan, because it is the only one that has its act together. And that's insane thinking about that when you're talking about Dragon Gate and the Dragon System, the most dramatic uh, system in modern wrestling history. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's so interesting when you look at just, I can't think of throughout history, I mean, maybe, maybe the Sumo Hall shows they did in like 2009 and 2010, but there's not a a business move or a show promotion 
throughout 25 years, unless I'm forgetting something obvious where you go, why the hell did they do that? You know, it wasn't, there wasn't a form of a Nokiaism there. There wasn't, yeah. Mrs. there wasn't Mrs. Bobble ruling with an iron fist. I mean, look, 2003 is an odd year for the promotion because it's, it's Torimon at its very best and it's very worst at the same time by way of Ultimo Dragon's vision. But historically, this promotion has been so conservative when it comes to their business. They don't have a major corporate backer. And you know, it really resonated with me when we had Jay on the show. I think this was two years ago because we were still in COVID talking about this. You know, think about, you know, NOAA and New Japan and, and even All Japan to some degree. They would run these giant buildings to get as many people inside the restricted capacity as they can. And when I asked Jay why Drangate wasn't doing that, he goes, because if it goes wrong, we're we're done for it. You know, we don't have this backing, this safety net that a lot of these other promotions have, despite Drangate uh, matching or beating them in popularity. They just don't have that financial safety net. And it's always been the case. I mean, part of the reason that the promotion split from Ultimo Dragon was they were the busiest promotion in Japan. They would run more shows than anybody. They were a financial success at that point. I mean, a hot, hot promotion in 2003. They were still living in dorms. And Ultimo Dragon was living the lifestyle of Ultimo Dragon. You know, it's, it's just a very, it's very odd thing that historically they've seemed to have been the same from a business standpoint. Yeah, and it is something where that starts with this main event. I, I, I would say that everything that happens in the on this episode of Ominous Amigos, everything that happens at uh, Corquin Hall for the opener of the King of Dragon uh, tour ends with this elimination six-man tag. As we said, it's 45 minutes long. I will run through the eliminations. I did find a... Uh, I, I found a version of iHeartDG that I'm ro- rolling with from the Wayback Machine from 2010 case. So I'm reading it from Jay's notes from this here. It is a three falls to two victory for Seki Gun. Uh, Kid gets the, uh, elim- the elimination order goes Kid over Sua with a Dragon Ron in, in 24 minutes, 18 seconds. Fuji with a Nodawa elbow on Saito in 2646 in the most brutal part of the match. And then we get in the most brutal part of the match. Uh, Kid eliminates Fuji with the Ultra Hurricane Ron in 3140. And then and then Shima gets into like the, the worst 15 minutes of his uh life in the ring because he gets the crap kicked out of him by Kid and and Magnum Tokyo. Uh he eliminates Kid 36 minutes with the mad splash and the match concludes with the AV Star Press over Nobunaga at 4504. Shima's left a bloody husk, but probably throughout like the period of the mat the match becomes the star of the promotion during the match yeah that's what dave notes and, and the observer write-up is that you know shima this, this is this is the story of shima's career where every wherever he went he became the star whether that was the intention or not and the thing that has to be said about this match before you talk about the end ring and there's a lot that could be said there thank god the Dragate network has this included because you know there's there's weird music rights deals where you end up missing some big Toriumon angles throughout history on the network because there's music playing and it's just, it's a bummer. The Magnum Tokyo entrance on this show is one of the most electric things in the history of pro wrestling. And that is not hyperbole in the slightest Magnum Tokyo coming out to the ring in this Cork and Hall show with He's this a crowd. God. It is unbelievable. And I will, I will fully steal this story from Jay. Jay told this story on his podcast a long time ago. Next time we have him on, we're going to talk about some old Toriumon stuff. He might tell the same story. I'm going to tell it here anyways, which is that this is 
2002, 2003, 2004, sometime in that era. I don't know who it was, but there was one guy who lived in Japan who was like the merch guy that if you needed Japanese wrestling merch, he would go to the show and get it for you and ship it back to America. I don't know what Toriyaman shirt Jay wanted, but Jay wanted a Toriyaman shirt. And this guy was, you know, New Japan, All Japan, Noah. Toriyaman, not his bag at all. And he goes to this show and he, you know, gets whatever Jay needs, sends it to him. And Jay asked him what he thought of the show. And he goes, you know, not for me, not my thing. Oh my God, the Magnum Tokyo entrance. What, what, what an incredible spectacle that was. He's like, I can't, this is not a promotion I want to watch ever again. I can't help but comment on the spectacle that was the Magnum entrance. Yeah, it is something where very rarely in wrestling do you get a moment like this where you see someone become a god on screen. Magnum Tokyo becomes a god on this night. And it is solely from him trying to walk to the ring. Like, he gets to a certain point. You know what's the point where you know when someone has it or not in this entrance? And you can tell it in one moment. Okay. It is when... Yeah, when's that? It is when there's so much money in his waistband that he can't get any more money in there. And he goes and he he bites and kisses the money, uh, the yen note, away from the fan. He holds it in his mouth the remainder of the time. That's when you know someone has it. When they go like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to look so much cooler doing this. Absolutely. No, he's just... He's on another level. It's so, you know, it's so funny. Like he's just on another level and the bell rings and and you kind of get rabid dog Shima again. And all of a sudden, you know, he really, even if Magnum is considered the top star, uh, at least of a single star, not counting crazy max for a lot of the promotions history, you know, it's, it's Shima's world. Right. And, you know, Shima takes control of this match. I, I, I think Shima's output holds up very well. I think Saito's output holds up very well. And Fuji's does too. Fuji's does as well. And, you know, look, it's like it's we've had a lot of listeners because over the years, you know, I think we we make a lot of references to Magnum Tokyo and sometimes they're positive and sometimes they're negative. And I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, to sort of explain Magnum and just explain his whole deal. It never got better than this night. And that's not right. a dig on him because few wrestlers are able to com- command a crowd the way that he did on this specific show. I mean, this is S tier, you know, 0.01% level stuff. And it's not that the rest of his career was a waste, but this was it for him. That, you know, Toriyaman landed in Japan and Magnum Tokyo was captain of the ship. It just so happened that Shima took the keys from him at one point. Yeah, and it's something where you have this promotion that also at this time, I don't know exactly the WCW TV in Japan. I don't think it's really much of anything other than maybe they send some tapes put on Samurai. But it is something where you could tell someone is like a star. And the the thing is, is that um, everyone else from this point, from this match, uh, the six men involved, uh, everyone on the outside, with the exception of Taru, case everyone else greatly improved and in very quick fashion as someone like dragon kid getting the reps and getting a lot more consistent to someone like don fuji who's realizing oh i can just do like the brawl and to save my knees to, to having wrestling geniuses like masaki mochizuki transform the promotion magnum kind of just stays this magnum and that's kind of the sad thing about that yeah i look i i think Part of the reason this promotion just, you know, again, to come full circle, has the spirit that it has is 
they hit they, they batted a thousand percent with this first class. I mean, I mean, think about the names. It's Shima. And even if, you know, he doesn't have the relevance today because of the injury and the fact that he went away, it's Magnum and it's Fuji who's still there. And it's Sua who, you know, when he was on was just incredible. And it's Dragon Kid who you and I, you and I did two different segments last year because I went and looked, they're both on YouTube about how historically underrated Dragon Kid is. And then you add on Genki, and then Kanda, and then Susumu. And of course, now you have 25 years of history from, you know, Shingo to Tozawa to Yamato to Ben to Shun to, you know, Eita and whoever else. But the first class, historically, is an anomaly. It's just incredible. The talent that was produced in 1997, the guys that were there, and the legacies that they have today. There's a hundred better six-man tags in the history of Torimon. There might be 200 tags historically better in the history of Torimon, but you have to watch this match. One, frame it in the context of 1999. Think about what's going on in Japan. You're still talking about orange tights Kobashi and blue tights Akiyama and, you know, this weird era of all Japan with like Vader and Ogawa and, and you know, it just it, it's a it's a strange time for that promotion. New Japan is a disaster. You can read 1999 Observer sections for New Japan. It's like reading high comedy. It's just absolutely wonderful. You think about how, uh, just for lack of a better term, unadvanced those promotions were, athletically speaking. And then you have this Torimon six-man, and it it quite literally changes the Japanese wrestling industry, even if, really, it's a good match, not a great match. Yeah, but like that's the wild thing to to like think about is this is only the prototype. Like we don't talk really that much about great six man tag matches because Dragon Gate's kind of gone beyond that. But at this time, we see the framework and we see a framework of what wrestling would become after a decade of people really in that industry, like putting forth what modern pro wrestling would be if it would be seeing more of a shoot style thing, seeing how uh, pride would, would kind of change the wrestling industry for better and for a lot worse. But what we see now in 2024 and what we see now on the eve of the uh, silver anniversary of the Torban Japan landing is this framework and, and this blueprint that we now 25 years later, I think we can clearly stay, say change the wrestling world. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, I can't say it better than that. So it, it's a funny thing. You know, this first Torimon show is is not a great show. You know, it, it's not full of bangers. Again, the first three matches are really simple. You get the Buku Dojo stuff, which I'm not really into. And then you have this mess of a six man. And I think uh, the guys at DVDVR, this is from their 95th issue. They say it the best when they say, uh, and I quote, Awesome match with some incredible spots. They probably could have trimmed down by about 10 minutes, but I guess Ultima wanted to make sure everybody got plenty of time to strut their stuff here. It also shows how Bischoff, and this is in all caps, utterly missed the boat on these guys, especially Tokyo, who looked like a fucking superstar in this match, end quote. And I, I really started thinking about that in relation to, again, the larger wrestling world, because this is only January of 99. You've got two more years of WCW there. In... I know the plan was, you know, in April they were going to come back and Toriyama was going to anchor the cruiserweight division, but there's an alternate timeline where we get two more years of now 
fully trained, becoming fully developed, you know, Crazy Max and Dragon Kid and Genki Horiguchi, they could have wrestled a WCW. And we just don't get it. And that is such a bummer. And like, uh, we talked a little bit about hinge points. Think about the hinge point of what would have happened going on if they continued down there just with T2P. What happens when uh, Mike Tanay sees Masato Yoshino for the first time? Sees Yoshino. When seeing the Italian connection show up on WCW Saturday night. Like, it, yeah. it would... The, the, that We're living the worst timeline in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. Oh, but, I mean, look, this is... I, I've... I've spent an embarrassing amount of time thinking, you know, if WCW lives, yeah, the the way that Milano Collection AT would have become a giant star in America, like it just would have happened, it, you know. Well, so for those that don't know, and I don't even know if Mike knows we're doing this, we're gonna do the same show for the oh, first yeah. for the first Toriumon X show, which was <laughs> I think I think uh, that was April two thousand three. Yeah, April of two thousand three. So we'll we'll do one for the anniversary of Toriumon X, and we're gonna do one for the debut of T two P, which is November. So we'll spread these out throughout the year, and, and we'll have other shows throughout yes. the year. Of course. Um, but man, I spend time thinking about Milano and how that is that is really you said worst timeline there. The career of Milano Collection AT, and this is a weird thing to say, could not have gone worse because there are oh, so many it just that that is like a, a a giant what if for me because everything that we just said with Magnum, it also applies to Milano, and it also helps that he was just better. You know, yeah. it's just that is the guy that if I if I could run anybody's career back one more time, I think it might be Milano Collection AT. So we'll we'll talk about that more in November. But Mike, I, I leave you your final thoughts on the first Tori show. Man, uh, I it, it, it is something where I keep on going back to that six man tag and I keep on going from like the amount of moments and the highs and lows about this that. I, I would say that for a match that I would say each time I watch it, I probably in my mind knock off a quarter star, or a half star each time. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. You said that the last yeah. time I gave this, I gave it four and a quarter and I could not possibly give it four and a quarter now. Yeah. Like it for me, I would say three and a half stars and, uh, and all that happening. I'm like, Oh, but it has the moment where Shima gets absolutely plastered and is bleeding for 15 minutes. And he looks cool as hell. We have, uh, Ultimo in a tracksuit getting so mad about Taru interfering that he summons uh, Kanichiro Rai to shove him in the back. And perhaps, just if we're talking about fun moments of this match, uh, Madam Tokyo doing his dance and right in the background looking perplexed and awkward is Saito. <laughs> Very much so. So, uh, look, I... I I had a lot of fun rewatching the show. I had a lot of fun putting together the Ultimo timeline. We've had people ask for more Torimon content on the show. It's during 825, so we have a lot of it planned. But if there's there's audio you want us to cover, you know, if there's if there's shows or moments that you would like us to break down, please let us know. Open the VoiceGate channel on the Voices of Wrestling Discord because uh, I'm I'm open to suggestions. Like I said, we'll do the the first Torimon X show, which might drive me to dr uh, drive me to drink for the first time in my life. And we'll uh, we'll do the first T2P show. But anything else that anybody wants to hear, please let us know. And I thought our long promised over generation episode as a part of Dragon Gate 25 would have been the one that did the trick, not Torimon X. That's right. We got to do that this year. That's that. You know what? Thank you for that, because that's a very good idea. I'm glad you remembered that. 
Yeah, I'm going to wait until everyone forgets, and that's when we're going to do that. (laughs) But that is going to do it for us this time on Open the Voice Gate. If you're listening to this on January 31st, thanks for joining us, celebrating something that I can only speak for myself, and I feel like I can speak for Case a little bit here, something that's very near and dear to us all, the uh, anniversary of the Dragon System, 25 years now. And we will be back on this feed later this week. This is kind of one of those episodes. One of the reasons we like doing uh these rewind and rewatch these are like the episodes that uh of course we want you to listen in the moment but they're great to save for a plane trip a drive or what have you but if you're listening to this episode uh currently uh be sure to keep your your eyes and ears peeled as we'll have the regular uh open the voice gate in your feed over the next 24 hours but as case said hit us up in the open the, the voice gate channel in the uh vow discord for other ideas suggestions on torimon footage and stuff you would like us to cover this year and we'll endeavor to do so but case is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we got out of here i i do not uh other than you know if anybody uh has uh questions or needs torimon viewing recommendations uh please shoot me a message i'd be more than happy to help you out so and absolutely just i uh, think both of our dms are open on uh, discord and on twitter for that uh just hunt us down but that will do it this time on uh rewind and rewatch for dragon gate 25 we'll be back with you next time visiting the archive and rewinding and rewatching and talking about another important moment in dragon system history you can follow the podcast at open voice gate cases at underscore in your case i'm at fuji hey uh, thanks for us in open voice gate we'll be back with you next time take care Hi, my name is Tyler Fornis, and I am the co-host of The Good, The Bad, and The Hunky here on the Voice Wrestling Podcasting Network. Every week, my co-host Fred Moreland and I discuss all the happenings of all elite wrestling and everything going on in the universe of Tony Khan. We talk about Dynamite, we talk about Rampage, and we will talk about Collision when the time comes as well, along with all the appearances outside of AEW from all the best talents in all elite wrestling. This is one of the more cohesive wrestling companies in the entire world, and we discuss every intricacy about it, including the unique booking of Tony Khan that is both a huge positive and a major detriment. Check us out every single Thursday here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network.